I'm crushing it. So boasted Michael Cohen, President Trump's longtime personal lawyer and all-purpose fixer, as he was raking in big bucks last year in the aftermath of his client's election as president. But now it looks like Cohen is the one who is about to be crushed by federal prosecutors pouring over those payments that were funneled into a Delaware shell company that he originally set up to pay off porn star Stormy Daniels. AT&T pumped in $600,000. Novartis, the big pharmaceutical company, $1.2 million. Korean Aerospace, another $150,000. And a company tied to a powerful Russian oligarch, $500,000. What were they paying Cohn for and why? How did they find him in the first place? And what did he do with the money? Those are among the questions we'll explore on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say is a ruse. I'm Michael Isagoff, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. So, Dan... You know what I love about this Michael Cohen story? Uh, it's it's delicious on so many different levels. But um, here's a guy who uh, basically had no experience in Washington uh, uh, on government, on policy matters, zilch, right? Um, Trump gets elected and he starts selling himself uh, to companies far and wide to pay him – for what? Um, and if you saw the list of those companies and the explanations they gave for why they hired Michael Cohen, and everyone was different. Uh, Korean Aerospace said it paid Cohen to, quote, inform reorganization of our internal accounting system. <laughs> exactly right. what you look to Michael yeah. Cohen for. <laughs> uh, Novartis said it hired him to advise the company as to how the tr- Trump administration might approach certain U.S. health care policy matters, including the Affordable Care Act. Um, clearly something that Michael Cohen would have been steeped in. Um uh, AT&T said it hired him to provide insights into understanding the new administration. And Columbus Nova, and that is the company that's tied to this uh, Russian oligarch, Victor Vexelberg, uh, billionaire, uh, aluminum magnate close to uh, Vladimir Putin, um, said um, – and this is the U.S. subsidiary of this Russian-owned company, uh, said it uh, uh, hired Cohen uh, as a business consultant regarding potential sources of capital and potential investments in real estate and other ventures. Right. You could just imagine uh, they actually uh, did not have any, like, real reasons written down for why they were doing this. And then all of a sudden it becomes public and they're all scurrying in their offices. Right. Scrambling, like, you know, scrambling. And they all come up with different yeah. explanations. Yeah. Right. 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 right, right. So, you know, look, I mean, uh, on one level, 
um, you know, this seems like, you know, it could be a, a very kind of key moment in this investigation. Um, and it just has the kind of smell of, you know, corruption, right? It's And it's a classic kind of follow the money, you know. People are pouring in large sums of money, corporations, foreign interests um, into Michael Cohen's bank account, his secret bank account, by the way, his LLC in Delaware. Um, and... Um, you know, for only one reason, um, and that is his relationship uh, with uh, Donald Trump, as far as we can tell. Um, at another now, level, there, you know, there are questions as to, you know, I, you know, this kind of influence peddling um, is, you know, kind of goes with the territory. It's not a new thing. Lobby, you know, people what, set themselves. This is what K Street this, lobbying firms do, right? I mean, so to on one level. Um, I, you know, this is just uh, shedding, shining a light on a practice that is institutionalized in Washington. I think the difference here is that um, there's not much pretense that Michael Cohen has expertise in any of the matters that um, these companies are hiring him for. So it makes it all the more glaring Basically, that the, that this is some way of getting access uh, uh, to the Trump White House, getting inside the Trump White House, right? Um, and and so then there's the question of like you know an AT and T, for example, a you know, blue chip American uh, corporation. Uh, you know they they don't put out you know give large sums of money like this um, without having some procedures inside their you know, corporate offices. There's some vetting. There've got to be memos written, justifications for spending $600,000 on something like this. So, you know, that um, is, you know, going to come out at some point. Right. And, the, um, and there's got to be a paper trail. That's right. Because when Michael Cohen approaches them, uh, somebody's got to write a memo. Do we hire this guy? Here's what Cohen said he could do for us. And somebody, are, and you know, somebody's raising questions. Wait a second. Does this really guy, does this right. guy really have the juice? Does he know any Anything about any of the matters we're interested in, right? And then there's you know these these companies all have business in, before the United States government, and we know uh, that AT and T uh, was uh, you know in, in the midst of, of this uh, you know um, uh, Time Warner deal, uh, right. which there was a reasonable chance that the United States government um, would oppose it on antitrust grounds, which ultimately is what happened. But at this right. point. Um, you know, nobody knew. And so you know, that is going to be what people are going to try to find out. Um, is there some connection? Is there some, you know, kind of quid pro quo? We don't have that. We have a quid. We don't have a pro or a quo yet. Um, and that's going to be what everyone is obviously going to try to uh, to find out. But there's just, you know, there's a kind of an amateurish quality to all of this. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, Michael Cohen um, – is using this same account uh, to pay off Stormy Daniels? Uh, is there a connection between any of these contributions and the Stormy Daniels money and potentially money to other, uh, you know, uh, porn stars uh, who were paid for their silence? Rudy right. Giuliani uh, just, uh, you know, this past week talked about, or I guess over the weekend, talked about how that might be the case, that might be a possibility. Um, it's just so so amateurish, right? Michael Cohen, as, as somebody said to me recently, is kind of a character out of Guys and Dolls. Nicely, nicely, I think is the uh, is the, the one yeah, who comes to mind. Two bit gambler, two bit, two -bit gambler, who's uh, uh, kind of uh, traffics in the low lifes of uh, 
of society. Uh, yeah, yeah. His yeah. boss was uh, Nathan uh, Detroit. Is that right? Donald Trump? And they're <laughs> running a run, running the government as a floating crap game. Yeah, the, the longstanding uh, floating crack. Crap game, the oldest floating crap game in Detroit. You know, but it um, is kind of Runyon-esque without the charm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, look, we're going to be talking about um, that uh, uh, with our uh, first guest, um, Stephen Vladek, and also a professor at the University of Texas Law School, uh, but also about what it l- is looming as the upcoming showdown between uh, the president and his legal team and uh, Robert Mueller about whether he's going to do that, uh, this interview. And then after that, uh, we're going to talk about the Gina Haspel um, nomination to be director of the CIA uh, with Ali Sufan, an old friend of ours, uh, former legendary FBI agent uh, who was the first to observe the uh, and witness the enhanced interrogation techniques uh, that are um, front and center in the hospital. I'm really looking forward to both of these conversations. Uh, Vladek is a really brilliant kind of national security uh, law expert, and um, uh, we're going to be talking to him about this question of whether a president can be subpoenaed, which we've talked about um, on many of these podcasts, but finally we've got someone who really (laughs) – uh, knows this issue well. Exactly. And if he's that brilliant, we should probably shut up and just bring him into the conversation. Let's let's do it. So we are joined now by Steve Vladek, professor of law at the University of Texas Law School and uh, co-founder of the Just Security blog. Uh, Steve, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's just start off with uh, the uh, Michael Cohen payments, uh, which really uh, came out of left field uh, and uh, have raised a whole host of questions. Um, What's your take on what we've learned about the big bucks that were going into Cohen's uh, Delaware Shell Company? Well, I think the, the, the most important takeaway here is that there's so much more now that I think we still don't know and need to know. Um, you know, I think when the when the Stormy Daniels news first started breaking, I think a lot of us thought it was just a sort of salacious distraction. But more and more every day that goes on with every one of these developments, you know, it seems like these are all actually part of the much larger puzzle here and just to what extent there was foreign money and foreign interests being peddled either directly or indirectly to, you know, the Trump universe through Michael Cohen. Guys, frankly, I think, you know, we're just at the tip of the iceberg now with regard to what we know and and what we can, you know, what we're going to find out. Um, the uh, uh, in terms of legal exposure, um, let's just walk us through this for a bit, because, I mean, look, um, uh, hustling clients by suggesting you can get them access uh, to a new administration, you know, that's kind of what K Street lobbying firms do, <laughs> right, for a living. So, I mean, is there something about the way Michael Cohen went about this that makes it more problematic or inviting for federal prosecutors? So I think it's too soon to tell, um, but certainly there's enough smoke there to at least make sure there isn't a fire. I mean, it's certainly the case that 
you know, pay to play is a sort of old standby of Washington politics. And we should say, I mean, the Supreme Court, you know, made it a lot harder a couple of years ago in the Bob McDonald case um, to actually successfully bring federal corruption prosecutions for, you know, not that dissimilar pay to play arrangements. I think there are a couple of differences here that could elevate this above and beyond the run of the mill case. The first is, you know, a lot of this money is foreign money. And where foreign money is implicated, there are some different laws that come into play, not just the Foreign Agents Registration Act, but a whole bunch of constraints on campaign funds, where they can come from, what they can be used for. Um, and second, you know, because of the Mueller investigation, I think there is just this specter of potential false statements, whether by Cohen or by other folks that the special counsel has spoken with, where even if the underlying pay-to-play might not have been prosecutable, especially after the McDonald case, there was enough of a effort to cover up these contacts, these relationships, you know, these payments that folks got themselves into legal trouble simply through the cover-up, even if not through some kind of underlying crime. Uh, Steve, um, one of the things that we're going to want to talk to you at some uh, length about uh, today is uh, whether uh, Mueller, um, you know, has the authority uh, to subpoena Donald Trump or whether President Trump can legally resist um, a, a, uh, a grand jury subpoena. Um, and so I guess the question is, when stories like this come out, these kinds of revelations, you said there's a lot more smoke there, but we don't know yet whether there's fire. But the, the, does that does that smoke um, in any way um, uh, sort of enhance Mueller's um, case? Does it make it legally easier in any way um, or is it not not particularly relevant I mean, in other words, what you know, what is the sort of threshold uh, for a prosecutor to be able to uh, subpoena a president? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think if we go back to sort of you know square one here for a second, I mean, Mueller's investigation, you know, Mueller's not like any other federal prosecutor. In theory, he's supposed to be able to tie almost all of his investigative actions to his underlying mandate to this original appointment memorandum, you know, signed by Acting Attorney General Rosenstein. And so I do think that Mueller does have an additional constraint that a lot of prosecutors don't in this context, which is, you know, for Mueller to really flex his muscle, he has to show how what he's pursuing is at least somehow directly or indirectly related to the scope of his approved investigation. That is to say, the broader specter of Russian interference and potential Russian collusion in the 2016 election. So to me, the relevance of the smoke is that I think it actually does make Mueller's job a little bit easier, at least in drawing these kinds of superficial connections, You know, not at the point of proving specific crimes or charging specific suspects, but just that you know he'll be allowed, I think, to pursue additional leads, to go down additional investigative pathways based on the at least superficially apparent connection here um, that, you know, but for this smoke, he might not be able to do. So, so at least from my perspective, before we even get to the conversation about subpoenaing Trump directly, you know, the more of this news that comes out, I think the, the more ammunition it is providing to the special counsel. And guys, frankly, the more ammunition it may have provided already. I mean, he may have known about this long before we did. Well, it's clear to, he did. You know, to go further and wider. It's clear he did because uh, it, the companies, some of the companies that were paying uh, Cohen have now confirmed that 
that they were questioned by Mueller's right. people uh, last fall, months ago. Right. Um, and, so, and so, and, and, and so, and so, and so far as there are folks out there who are continuing to question the legitimacy of Mueller's investigation from a scope perspective. I think each one of these stories only puts another, you know, sort of thumb on the scale in favor of Mueller and in favor of his ability to pursue these leads and to see if it really is all connected. Although uh, it's also true that the, the uh, Mueller handed off um, Cohen matters to the Southern District, uh, and that's what led to the search of Cohen's offices. Um, uh, presumably, these records would have been uh, uncovered in the course of that search. So, it, doesn't that tell us that maybe Mueller didn't see a case here and then referred it to um, the Southern District to follow up? It might. I mean, it's it's very possible that that's what happened here. It's also possible that Mueller was, you know, looking for sort of additional support from other DOJ units and saw a way to cleave off at least a particular investigation or a particular subslice that was not directly related to his charge and that could be, you know, meaningfully cabined um, within the the Southern District's jurisdiction. You know, I I don't think we can know for sure. I think the the, the key from my perspective is just that. You know, for all of the sort of speculation and the, that that Mueller's being quiet, that there's nothing else coming, I, I have to say that you know the more of the more of this stuff that comes out, the more I think that you know Mueller is not done, um, and that there are very possibly more indictments, not just from sort of other DOJ units, but from Mueller himself coming down the pike. Well, and there are a couple of other points. One one is that. Um, it's uh, entirely uh, possible that uh, the Southern District uh, executes uh, this raid and then they find documents uh, that are relevant to the Mueller investigation and send them back to him. It's also yep. possible. It's also possible that uh, you know, at, at a, you know, earlier on in the investigation, they so, saw no convergence between Stormy Daniels and the paying off of of. Um, uh, you know, of, of porn stars, uh, but that later there are documents or other evidence that shows uh, that there may be some uh, connection between those two investigations. And then it goes back to Mueller for that reason. So I th- there's just a lot that we don't know. Um, oh, I think that's right. And I think I think that to me, the, the, the key here is, is not just to appreciate all that we don't know, but to appreciate that, you know, the most important point, at least from my perspective, is how the more at least looks like these pieces relate to each other, I think the firmer footing Mueller is on with respect to pursuing these leads and seeing what there is, you know, seeing if there's anything at the bottom of those rabbit holes, including including uh, a uh, issuing a subpoena to um, Donald Trump. So, I mean, that's that's, of course, the million dollar question. I mean, I think the you know, that really would be the the sort of big moment, the the, the dramatic step. And I think the the key from my perspective with regard to a subpoena to the president is at this point, I think it's principally useful as leverage that the specter of whether Mueller could even try to compel the president to testify before a grand jury is actually a you know substantial lever that Mueller is, I'm sure, trying to use to convince the president, to convince the president's lawyers to agree to something short of that. And so I think you know the real sort of the two big questions to me are one, is there any chance? that the president and his legal team are going to voluntarily agree to anything um, that Mueller would be happy with, since presumably 
anything Mueller would be happy with would require the president to be under oath. And two, if not, is Mueller willing to you know, go the distance and to really sort of test matters by issuing a grand jury subpoena to a sitting president? Well, I did. I, I, I think one reason I wanted – I think we both wanted to have you on uh, this week is because we are coming to that moment. I believe uh, Rudy Giuliani has said next week – is the deadline for them making a decision, the president's legal team making a decision about whether they are going to submit the president uh, to an interview with Mueller. And uh, and after that, we could have the very showdown uh, that you're referring to. I mean, my guess is, based on everything that uh, uh, they've said before uh, uh, and uh, the growing antagonism that you see coming from the president's camp about Mueller is they're not going to submit to an interview. Uh, they're just going to say, sorry, uh, we'll answer any written questions you got, but um, uh, no dice on, a, uh, on an interview under oath. I mean, I think that's definitely a possible result here. And I think one of the questions for the Trump camp is if they really do believe that they can defy a subpoena from Mueller or if they really aren't worried about the specter of the president testifying before a grand jury, then I think that would be an understandable result. But, I mean, guys, I got to be honest. You know, looking at this as an outsider, I don't know how you could look at the case law and be confident that the president would win in a legal showdown over a subpoena And, you know, to my perspective, the absolute worst case scenario, if you're the president's legal advisors and you're worried about the president's potential exposure, is him testifying before a grand jury, Um, you know, where presumably it would be unscripted, where he wouldn't necessarily have the ability to, you know, run his answers by his lawyers and so on and so forth. So I guess, you know, I certainly understand the sound bites coming out of the Trump camp. I just I won't believe that they're really not going to even try to reach an accommodation um, until it's formal because you know the, the the equities are so heavily on Mueller's side if we actually get to the point well, let's, where let, there's a subpoena. Let's dissect that uh, dissect that a little bit because I, I, you know you go back to Nixon versus the USA, um, which is the sort of er decision uh, that would seem to set the president. The circumstances were very different in this uh, uh, than what we have right now. That was a case of about tapes that Leon Jaworski, the special Watergate prosecutor, needed in order to, for a ongoing criminal trial. He had indicted Haldeman, Ehrlichman, John Mitchell. Uh, They were defendants in the Watergate cover-up case that was going to be going to trial. There was no way Jaworski could bring that case when there were tapes with the defendants uh, on them that he did not have access to and the defendants didn't have access to. So so getting those tapes was crucial to the administration of justice. That's what the Supreme Court ruled in Nixon versus USA. It's not at all clear to me that the same uh, need that was articulated by Jaworski in Nixon versus USA is, uh, is evident in this, uh, in the set of circumstances we face now with Bob Mueller and, uh, and President Trump. So it's certainly factually distinct. I mean, I, I mean, we have to be abundantly clear about that, that, that as opposed to a subpoena for specific tapes as part of an ongoing criminal case, here we're talking about a more sort of amorphous grand jury subpoena. I guess I'm not convinced that the factual distinctions would actually run in the president's favor here, and for a couple of reasons. First, I mean, yes, the Supreme Court in the Nixon case 
made a very big deal out of the administration of justice, of criminal justice. But let's be clear. It was, as you say, the prosecutor, right, Jaworski, who wanted the tapes, not the defendants. That was not a case where you had you know, a defendant saying that we have some kind of constitutional right to potentially exculpatory evidence. So, you know, I've always thought that the Nixon's sort of focus on the public's interest in the prosecution having access to evidence theory was a bit overstated. Leaving that aside, though, I mean, we have subsequent Supreme Court decisions that I think would not necessarily help the president. The first, of course, is Clinton versus Jones, where the Supreme Court specifically considered and rejected the broader assertion um, that I think we would hear from President Trump if we got to it, that having to sit before a grand jury would unconstitutionally impinge upon his ability to you know, discharge his duties as commander-in-chief. I mean, leaving aside whatever folks think about the president's own schedule and executive time, you know, the Supreme Court was quite clear in Clinton versus Jones that it did not think that the burden of actually going through civil litigation, sitting for a deposition, perhaps even having to testify at trial, was of itself a categorical reason to not allow a sitting president to be sued. Um, I think a lot of that would apply here as well. And then you also have the Supreme Court in a case called R Enterprises um, being much sort of much more, how shall I say, capacious in its view of what is appropriate for government prosecutors to subpoena when it comes to a grand jury investigation versus a criminal trial. That the the sort of the specific limits that the court in Nixon identified for a criminal subpoena in a trial, the court in our enterprises says don't apply to grand juries. So, you know, I, I understand why Nixon feels different. I actually think that doctrinally, you know, the president's not going to be on any firmer footing today in trying to resist an otherwise valid grand jury subpoena than President Nixon ultimately was with regard to the, the criminal subpoena there. Guys, I, th I think the real issue is whether this president would feel more of an ability to defy and ignore a subpoena um, yeah. than Nixon did. I want to get to that in a second. But, I mean, th there is this kind of bedrock principle, um, I think, that goes back to the founders that the president is not above the law. But it is also the case, and I think the courts have said this, that the president is also not just like any other citizen. Um, and, and um, you know, there may be uh, immunity, but there are qualified immunities, you know, whatever. What, that's why I was asking the question before about sort of what the threshold is for a, a, uh, a subpoena because wouldn't you have to get a little bit beyond, you know, we, there's smoke and, you know, it's possible that the president – uh, you know, is involved in criminal activity, wouldn't you have to have some kind of showing that there is strong evidence of a crime by the president? Or can you just say we're, we're sort of fishing here and we need to talk to the president to inculpate him or exculpate him? I, I actually think the argument might shake out a bit differently. I mean, I actually think that if it came to pass, that Mueller's position would not be about the president's own culpability or about exculpating him, but rather about the president's centrality to Mueller's ongoing investigation into criminal acts by others close to him, um, right? And that the justification for calling the president as a witness would not be to, you know, have a sort of put up or shut up moment on whether he himself is guilty of any crimes, but rather would be to get him to either corroborate um, or to push back against some of the statements that have been made by others under investigation by Mueller. Um, from that perspective, you know, I think that's why even if the president were to be subpoenaed 
And even if he were to assert, say, his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, um, which, of course, he would have in such a circumstance, guys, I suspect Mueller would just immunize him, um, right? Because I don't think Mueller's goal here is actually to you know, procure an indictment of the president. Right. Well, he, I, he, I, I was going to say, this. but yeah. he, he, here's the problem with with uh, with that, uh, as I see it anyway, is uh, the um, most of those questions, not all, but most of the questions that Mueller's prosecutors gave to um, uh, Trump's legal team were about the obstruction issue. There's only one potential target in the obstruction phase of the investigation, and that's the president himself. He's the one that fired Comey. Um, so, and he's the one that asked for loyalty and asked Comey to uh, 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 let Michael Flynn go. So then you run up against the problem that, according to DOJ policy, Mueller can't indict the president anyway, right? So if he can't indict the president, why— for what investigation does he need Donald Trump's testimony on the obstruction issue? So I think there are two points there, right? I think the first is even if he can't indict the president, he certainly can make recommendations to Congress with regard to potential But wait a second. Is that within Mueller's mandate to make a recommendation relating to impeachment? I'm not at all sure that Mueller and Rosenstein are on board with that's one of the purposes of the Mueller investigation to uh, develop evidence that could be used by the House to impeach the president. It may or may not, but certainly it's within his mandate to provide a report to Congress. Um, To provide a report to Rosenstein, not to Congress. There's nothing in the regs that talk about Congress. There's nothing in the regs that, that – no, but I, guys, I had, I had always assumed that everyone accepted that the end game here was Rosenstein reporting to Congress. And indeed, I mean there's – as you know, you know, one of the things in the bill that um, just came out of the Senate Judiciary Committee to protect special counsel Mueller is actually to mandate what I think the Senate Judiciary Committee always, already assumes is the norm, which is that the report at the end of the investigation that goes to Rosenstein would also go to Congress. So I'm just trying to say, guys, that I think from Mueller's perspective, right, insofar as he's interested in the obstruction question, um, I, 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 I suspect it is because he thinks that if there's any potential exposure for the president directly, it's going to be exposure that Congress might choose to investigate subsequent to the conclusion of this investigation – since, of course, you know, obstruction has been the basis for the impeachment of Bill Clinton for the, you know, is one of the articles for the proposed impeachment of Richard Nixon. So, you know, that's where I think he's going on that front. With regard to the grand jury subpoena, though, I mean, I think, you know, part of what he's trying to do is not just get a sort of, you know, final narrative set on the obstruction question, but also just to make sure that, you know, for those few interactions where it really is just someone else's word against the president's, that there either are or are not consistencies in the stories, um, which I think we'd want any prosecutor in that circumstance to do. So I could imagine if he actually does issue a grand jury subpoena, there being some debate over the scope of the questions Mueller's going to be allowed to ask the president before the grand jury. I think the, the, the point I keep coming back to those, if we get to the fight over whether the special counsel in general has the power to subpoena a sitting president to testify before a grand jury, I don't think the answer is categorically no. And so then the fight just becomes, you know, what are the limits? What are the circumstances? What special protections ought to, you know, um, redound, right, to the fact that this is the president of the United States who's being called to testify? Yeah, you raised an interesting prospect before, which is the president deciding 
um, just not to comply uh, with the, with the uh, grand jury subpoena. And let's say that gets litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court and he's ordered to comply and he still doesn't. Um, what what happens then? Yeah, I mean that – guys, to me, that's the constitutional crisis. You know, we, we, we spend a lot of time these days talking about the specter of constitutional crises. And I think the, the one that I think is the most realistic is that one. Um, with Nixon, of course, right after the Supreme Court, you know, ruled eight, nothing against him – um, you know, there's still some suggestion that Nixon and his advisors at least talked about the possibility of ignoring the Supreme Court or at least explaining why they, they thought the Supreme Court was wrong and shouldn't be complied with. You know, they ultimately decided that the politics were such that had Nixon refused to comply with the Supreme Court, that would have just guaranteed his impeachment. Um, I don't know if that's true here. I mean, I think, you know, the to me, I think it would be a really interesting question whether you know, President Trump defying a Supreme Court decision that upheld a grand jury subpoena for his testimony as part of the special counsel's investigation, how would that be met with in Congress? And indeed, you know, which Congress, the one that's in place right now or the one that we're going to see on the far side of the midterms? Uh, uh, to uh, my mind, that that would be the million-dollar question about whether Republicans in Congress would finally at that point, you know, assert their institutional roles vis-a-vis -vis the president. But before we get to that point, of course, the Supreme Court would have to rule in favor of Mueller. And, you know, the other wild card is uh, we're talking about this Supreme Court uh, with some pretty hardline conservatives who are likely to take a, a skeptical view of Mueller uh, versus the right. president. It's not the, same, you, are, it's not the same Supreme Court that ruled 9-0 yeah. in, the, in the Paula Jones uh, case. Leave aside your, mm -hmm. your reading of the case law here, knowing this Supreme Court as you do, can you really be confident that, the, that it's going to rule the way you think it ought to rule? I mean, anyone who anyone who claims confidence about this Supreme Court on a, on a question like this one, I think, is selling something. I, I don't think I'm confident. I think that in the circumstances in which such a case would reach the Supreme Court, I have a hard time thinking that there would be five votes for the proposition that a special counsel lacks the power to subpoena a sitting president. Um, I don't think it'll be nine nothing like Clinton versus Jones. I don't think it'll be eight nothing like the Nixon case was. But you know, looking at the current court, I just. Yeah, I, it's hard to see where there are five votes for the idea that the president can't be compelled to testify before a grand jury. I, I think the far likelier scenario, and this is what happened with Nixon, um, is that at some point before the case gets to the Supreme Court, um, if we really get to the point where there's a grand jury subpoena and there's fighting over compliance, and let's say the president loses in the district court and maybe even the D.C. Circuit, that's the moment in 1973 when he fired Cox. Um, right. I mean, the Saturday Night Massacre was a direct response to President Nixon losing the first round of litigation over the tapes in the D.C. Circuit. So it seems to me that, you know, before this case ever gets to the Supreme Court, Mueller's not going to be the special counsel anymore. And I think that's part of why, you know, the conversation over this bill to protect him um, and over how Congress actually would respond, even without this bill, if the president were to somehow accomplish his removal – is probably going to happen before we ever get to, you know, this Supreme Court deciding up or down on the constitutional validity of a grand jury subpoena issued to a sitting president. Steve, you mentioned another thing that um, I actually have not heard a lot of conversation about, which is the possibility that that uh, Mueller just immunizes uh, uh, Trump. Um, and, and you, you know, there's a compelling case for it because uh, if he can't indict him anyway, then there's no risk to, to Mueller to, to taking that. 
tax. How, how would that change the, the the legal and I and I guess also the political equation or dynamics in in this? So legally, I mean, the I, the political answer I think is hard. The legal answer is easy. Um, a prosecutor who gives a grand jury witness. Um, use immunity and derivative use immunity, that witness then is not allowed to turn around and invoke the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, um, right? The idea being that if the, pro- if the government's saying, we will forswear prosecuting you for anything you say to the grand jury, you can't then say, I'm not testifying because what I might say might be the basis for prosecuting. And, and, then, they, and, then, and then the president would be held in, could be held in civil or, or criminal contempt. Um, if he defies, if he refuses to comply with the subpoena, and we're back to the whole sort of litigation over the subpoena. Right. Um, with regard to the politics, I mean, you know, I think the politics here are very interesting. I mean, I think one of the arrows that Mueller has left in his quiver is indeed that immunity arrow, um, where if we actually get to a point where a subpoena really does appear to be in the offing, it wouldn't surprise me if we start hearing folks talk about, you know, whether Mueller's going to offer that kind of immunity in exchange for the testimony. Um we're not I, – I, again, I mean the fact that we're not talking about that, that you're not seeing public reports suggests to me that we're not close to that point, that you know the specter of the subpoena is still mostly just being used for leverage. But as you guys said, I mean we're, we're getting close – we're getting there pretty quickly and I think that's going to be one of the interesting things to watch and how folks you know, on Capitol Hill react when the conversation all of a sudden turns to subpoenas and immunity and potential litigation. Uh, Well, I think we are uh, coming to that point very soon, and um, we will want to have you back when we get to the constitutional crisis that you uh, forecast here this afternoon. Fascinating conversation, Steve. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks for – happy to join you guys. And, and, you know, for all of our sakes, I hope that we actually never need to have that conversation. (laughs) Okay. Take care. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. And we are joined now by Ali Soufan, a former FBI agent, in fact, uh, one of the uh, Bureau's top experts on al-Qaeda, who had uh, firsthand experience with uh, the CIA's use of enhanced interrogation techniques. In fact, he may have been one of the first to uh, observe what the CIA was doing at a uh, safe house in Thailand. Uh, And the uh, techniques that Ali observed and later spoke out about um, are exactly what is being discussed in the Gina Haspel confirmation hearing uh, to determine whether she will be the next CIA director. Ali, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks. Thank you, guys. Um, So uh, give us your take. You watched uh, the Gina Haspel confirmation hearing, that which was public and not uh, behind closed doors, classified. Um, What's your your assessment? Well, um, first of all, I thought that... um, it was tragic that uh, for the very first time we had a woman uh, to be nominated to lead the CIA, the best intelligence agency in the world. And we're not talking about the glass ceiling. We're talking about torture. We're talking about opening old wounds. We're talking about American morality and value and our definition of morality and value. And we're talking about someone who very obviously was trying to hide behind walls of secrecy every time a difficult question comes, I cannot answer that. It's a classified, somebody who is um, 
um, deciding what to classify and declassify of her own record on the spot. Um, I think that that was really um, a sad moment because there are uh, so many men and women uh, in the intelligence community, and especially women in the intelligence community, who have been doing phenomenal job in keeping this country safe, in fighting for American values and constitution and, 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 and principles around the world. And uh, instead of talking about this milestone that uh, the women in the intelligence community achieved, uh, we are talking about open wounds. We're talking about turning the page back. We thought we turned the page on the page on torture. All of us agreed that this is going to be behind us. The, the CIA is so important. Our intelligence community is so important. The reputation of our country is so important. Let's put it behind us and move forward. Why do you think we can't um, kind of move forward on this issue? Why do you think uh, we keep coming back to it? And I mean, we, you know, we've outlawed it. I mean, the Congress outlawed right. it. We, we kind of call it torture. Everyone does at this point. It's sort of a consensus almost. And yet here we are debating it again and um, promoting someone That's who is extremely Dan. involved in it. <clears throat> That's a good question. And I think because of the lack of accountability and the lack of accountability is not a Republican thing or a Democratic thing. It's not about Trump. It's also about Obama and about Bush. Um, look, you know, um, you know, we thought we turned the page, but they are insisting to turn back the page. And when you turn back the page, when you try bring people from the past to lead the future with the hope that they can rewrite history, with the hope that they can um, um, uh, reinvent uh, their own tarnished uh, credibility, uh, then we need to fight back. And we're going to start talking about the truth about this program, right. about the efficacy of this program. Now, Ali, you, were, uh, you have truly unique credentials to talk about this because you observed firsthand what the CIA sure. was doing in 2002 with Abu Zubaydah. Um, tell us what you saw and why you protested what you were seeing. Well, you know, when I was about to get arrested um, and um, I was part of a team, CIA and FBI team, talking to him, uh, there was nothing called enhanced interrogation techniques. Uh, these contractors who were uh, hired later were not even on the scene. Um, the very first question I asked Abu Zubaydah, what's your name? And he said, Dawood. Dawood meaning David in, 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 in English. And I said, what if I call you honey? And uh, he was really shocked because Hani was the nickname that his mother called him as a child. So um, at that point, he was kind of like, if they know that about me, they know a lot of things. And we started this it's mental a, poker game with it's him. It's a classic FBI technique, It's right? a classic interrogation technique. Yeah. It's, uh, it can be FBI technique. You can call it CIA technique with sources. You can call it a journalist technique. How many mm -hmm. times you guys ask <laughs> questions and bluff people to, right. to admit yeah. stuff? Um, so Isikoff would never it, do that. <laughs> no. Oh, never. <laughs> so um, immediately, uh, literally in less than an hour, he gave us actionable intelligence about a pending terrorist plot in an allied country, and we passed this information. Uh, the information came to Langley. Uh, I, uh, we heard that uh, Tennant, when he was briefed, was very pleased. He wanted to congratulate the officers on the ground. He was told that Basically, it was two FBI agents, and he flipped why CTC were not there. Well, CDC did not go because they literally thought that this guy is definitely not Abu Zubaydah. So that's why they didn't even bother mm -hmm. to show up. Um, 
So uh, a few hours later, Abu Zubaydah became septic and he was really sick. But because he gave us this amazing actionable intelligence uh, at the very first hour, uh, the order came from Langley that death is not an option. So we had to do whatever we can to keep him alive. Except uh, because when he was captured, medical. he had been shot. He, right? he, was, so. he has been shot. What, what was the intelligence he gave right off the bat? Uh, a, a threat, uh, a pending plot in a third country, which mm-hmm. is an allied country to the United States. I think this is still classified, so I cannot right. uh, talk about it. Right. At least it's redacted in my book. I don't think it should be classified. The plot has been disrupted <laughs> how many years ago? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and by the time, and it was announced in the papers that it was disrupted at that time. So, <laughs> you know, I, I went back and I read the op-ed piece you wrote in the New York Times in 2009. That's when you broke your silence yes. after the tor- so-called torture memos became yes. public, and then you could go public with your story. And you tell this whole story. One of the things that you you wrote in that piece, which I thought was interesting, uh, was that um, the your CIA colleagues at the time, yes were opposed uh, to these techniques. Absolutely. Uh, and that it was the contractors who were pushing them, uh, but also the um, the their, your CIA colleagues' bosses were saying, no, no, go forward with these te- techniques. So would you put Gina Haspel in that group? Was she someone, as far as you know, who was who was pushing for these techniques or was she just following orders or I, where do you place her in this I, I don't know. I, I don't know what was her position at the time, um, but I know that... Uh, uh, a few CIA folks uh, at the black site um, were really frustrated and annoyed uh, with outside contractors coming and ordering them around. Uh, they thought that what we were doing violate the Geneva Conventions, violate international laws and I mean, American values. Wait, wait, wait and they actually pushed me to stand up. They, yeah, they were like, yeah. you're the FBI. You you guys need to do something about it. And I testified about that under oath in Congress. But describe the techniques we're talking about. Because at, at this point, it was not waterboarding, right? No, you there was no waterboarding. waterboarding, which is the one everybody points to. But there was a lot of other stuff that... That, that you called you. that you called borderline torture. It was it was uh, nudity. It was a sleep deprivation for a long period of times where they were experimenting. So they do it twenty four hours doesn't work. Let's do it forty eight hours doesn't work. Let's do it seventy two hours and so forth. Um, it was you know um, noise, um, sleep deprivation. Uh, it, it was stuff that was mentioned later, or stuff that were mentioned tactics that were mentioned later. Um, as part of the enhanced inter- interrogation techniques that can lead into into uh, waterboarding towards the end. And at one point, you see a dark wooden confinement box. It's a coffin. It's a big coffin. And uh, I came to the base, and it was there. And um, my colleague from the CIA, he said, can you believe this? You know, I don't know if we can say S-H-I-T in your phone. Your yeah, radio. go ahead. Well, you can. This is a <laughs> I said, what is that? podcast. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, yeah. I said, well, what is this? He said, well, yeah. they want to, you know, do uh, put him in the coffin basically. And uh, I assumed at the time, both of us assumed they want to do kind of like fake burial or something. Like a, like uh, a mock, mock, mock burial. burial. So yeah. this was yeah. literally a coffin-like structure that they yeah, were yeah, going to yeah. put the uh, detainee in. Mm-hmm. We did not get to the bottom of all this stuff. Um, I think when I saw that and we talked about it and he said, look, really, you got to do something. And uh, this is when I called uh, the FBI and uh, the FBI pulled us out. 
um, uh, when I interviewed you back in 2009 about this, the part that really leapt out at me is you called your direct superior, Pasquale de Moro, who was then the uh, FBI assistant director for counterterrorism and said, I swear to God, I'm going to arrest these guys. (laughs) And these guys being the CIA folks who were planning no, the on doing contractor, this, the contractors, the contractors right. not the CIA. Right. Actually, right. the CIA folks who were on the ground, they will help me put the handcuffs on, right. on right. at least one of those contractors at the time. But, you know, this is just, um, this is one of the reasons, Dan, that I spoke out against torture because when these memos came and they were declassified, um, the, the OLC memos, the torture memos, um, you had the torture cabal at the time, everyone came out saying how this torture program saved lives. So they start, um, you know, um, uh, mentioning stories how we identified KSM because of waterboarding. Uh, we stopped Jose Padilla because of waterboarding. But in fact, and you were the one who got it that's using what traditional me, interrogation that's techniques. What made me, that's what made me go out public because right. that is so not true. Uh, for example... Uh, Jose Padilla was arrested in May of 2002. Waterboarding did not start until August of 2002. Mm -hmm. So unless you have a time machine, there is no way that Jose Padilla was arrested because of information that we gleaned from waterboarding. Um, The same thing with KSM. KSM um, was identified early on before CTC even were on the ground. Um, I still cannot say until today how we identified KSM. But I can tell you, it wasn't because of waterboarding. It wasn't because of nudity. I mean, at the time, I was I wasn't even in the cell yet. Um, you know, so... Uh, well, it's if interesting. You look, if you look into my, in my book, you will see the whole thing still redacted. Right. Um, we, you know, I, I, I always say we forced Gump ourselves to it. Yeah. Um, that's basically how we identified him. It's, so, so you know, I have firsthand experience with enhanced interrogation techniques. A lot of the uh, information that you hear in public that we, we, we were able to obtain because of torture, because of waterboarding, I testified under oath in Congress, under oath, that this is not true. And I told them how we got the information. In classified hearings, they know exactly how we get the information. It's interesting because um, uh, Gina Haspel holds out at the hearing on on Wednesday. She held out uh, the capture of uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as one of the you know the great work and also that the CIA the identification, did. Right. The identification. Now of she him doesn't too. explicitly say that it was because of those techniques because she says that's unknowable, but that is the implicit message. Look, when when I was um, with my team, uh, I was able to identify Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as a master of 9-11. I can call, oh, my God, we were brilliant in doing it. No, we were not. We just found out about it by mistake. Well, you Let's showed, you showed I, I cannot, the There, There are a lot of rumors. There are a lot right. of rumors out there okay. about how it happened. And uh, I am looking forward to the day where... Uh, there will be transparency, not the selective declassification that we see today in order to control narrative, full transparency, and let me publish 
how we really identified Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Let me publish how we really identify Jose Padilla. Let me publish how we fooled Abu Zubaydah to give us information about plots that were going on in a few other countries, uh, you know. You're, uh, you're free to do that world. right now on Skullduggery. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then they will they will be free to uh, to, <laughs> to to make all this sort of accusations. How I'm rescuing sort. Uh, uh, we'll we'll we'll, we'll protect you. We'll yeah, protect me, all let, our guests. Let at me Skullduggery. Ask, let me ask you this, um, uh, Ali. The Skullduggery uh, Protection Program. Yeah, <laughs> will kick in for Ali Safan. Uh, yeah, um, you obviously you oppose the nomination of uh, Gina Haspel to be sure. CIA director. Uh, but do you th- do you see you think that she is morally culpable um, for her f- conduct here, or you is your view that that it just sends a bad message um, that uh, well, that we would elevate someone who was involved in a program like this? Well, I think she has a lot of questions that still need to answer, and there's a public hearing, and in the public hearing, that's her chance to answer it. And I think yesterday we saw firsthand that she's refusing to answer a lot of these things in a public way. Uh, things that uh, you and I are talking about now, so it's not really uh, that classified. Things that the CIA declassified over the years, uh, not only about her involvement in the torture program. Their involvement in the torture program is is horrible, is horrific. And uh, the whole issue of... And she uh, was the chief of staff to Jose Rodriguez, the, the and chief before, of counterterrorism, exactly, and, and, who, which was implementing right. the program. So, so she oversaw the implementation so there's a couple of, things. of these techniques. There's a couple of things about her. There's about her involvement and the whole idea of we're following orders. That doesn't fly. All of us were there. All of us get these orders and people from the CIA. Actually, there is a high-level CIA person who walked out of that base before me and he said, it is not worth losing your soul because hmm. of this. A CIA person. And he kind of like, he kind of made me think again about about what we're doing over there, right? So, so a lot of people in the CIA did not do what she did or she uh, continued uh, to do. I'll give you another example. If you look into the CIA's Inspector General report, the first page, the he talks, report. Helgerson report, the first page, he talks about all the men and women from the CIA who came from all these different black sites complaining to him about what they experienced overseas. That's why he started the investigation. And by the way, what is the main conclusion of investigation? That torture or EIT did not produce any significant intelligence that disrupt the plots, period. That is his own conclusion. That's the CIA's own conclusion, which matched the conclusion of the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence and all the other reviews that were done later. And I can attest to that from my own personal experience. So the other issue with Ms. Haspel is the destruction of the tapes. Right. I was just going to say, that and, that is and, the single act that right. has gotten the most attention because she drafted the cable she, that ordered the destruction of the videotapes right. of the uh, waterboarding of two detainees. Right. Yeah. And and yesterday she said, no, it was only one detainee, even Which though... Was curious, yes. Well, curious, but even though there are records from the CIA, if you go to the declassified records... Of the 92 tapes, it said mm-hmm. detainee one and detainee two. Right. So who's detainee two if, you know, the CIA's own record contradicts the statement it, that she said right, yesterday. Right. 
Is that and that and that would be Abu Zubaydah and um, I assume it's Nashiri. Uh, yeah, yeah, because they didn't do videotapes after that. So right. I assume it's uh, it's Nashiri. Right. So you have records that has been declassified by the agency about these tapes, and on these records you have detainee one and detainee two. And now she's saying, oh, there's 92 tapes of only one detainee, and uh, and we have other records that has been declassified over the years uh, that raises significant questions about her own role that go that the destruction of the tapes goes beyond uh, what uh, Jose Padilla did. Uh, she probably was way more involved than a lot of people thought that she was. Now, the um, uh, one thing that leaps out at me in reading some of the uh, contemporaneous emails that have been made public through ACLU litigation and the um, uh, the Mike Morell memo that was just released by the CIA a couple of weeks ago is the question of why the tapes were destroyed. The public explanation from Gina Haspel and Jose Rodriguez is they were trying to protect the identity of CIA officers, covert officers who were on the tapes. But some of the uh, uh, contemporaneous emails suggest um, uh, that was not the primary motivation. It was how the CIA would look uh, uh, if these tapes ever came out. In fact, here's one to Dusty Fogo, uh, uh, November 10th, 2005, about the plans to destroy the tapes. They're quoting Jose Rodriguez here. Uh, that was Gina Haspel's boss and said, um, uh, as, as Jose said, this is the email. We don't know who wrote it, but it's two, the number three. And this is a, it seems to be a meeting inside the CIA, like yeah. a high-level meeting discussing I, this issue. The heat from destroying is nothing compared to what it would be if the tapes ever got into public domain. He said that out of context, they would make us look terrible. It would be devastating to us. Well, yeah. I mean, it's obvious. It's about a credibility. And, and these tapes, look, I was on these tapes. Because I interrogated Abu Zubaydah. And I think on these tapes, you will see exactly when Abu Zubaydah, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, gave informations about, about these kind of things. So, so in, in, in my recollection when I was there, I think me and my partner were probably the only people who were not wearing masks. But everyone who goes in was wearing, was wearing masks. I don't well, know what happened. Wait a second. If they were wearing masks, why were they so worried that's, about, that's about their identity? identity. Yeah. That's a very good question. That's a very good question to ask. I've never heard so, this before, but so, it does uh, seem to... So that, uh, that raises questions. Yeah, so um, now I, I, ca I cannot tell you what happened after we left if, uh, you know, the masks thing, you know, um, evaporated. But um, my, my recollection of this, that's what happened. And it, it's very obvious that it was about credibility. It's about uh, hiding information. It's about, uh, it's about uh, lots of other things. Uh, it's not specifically that they were scared of al-Qaeda to hunt these uh, CIA people who uh, were involved in, uh, in the program. I, 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 I'm, I'm not buying that. Okay, so there's another part of the email trail um, that's quite interesting because Gina Haspel in her testimony um, confirmed that she did in fact draft the cable uh, for um, uh, ordering the um, destruction of the tapes. And in one of those emails uh, that was released, um, these are 2005 emails, um, it's clear that she is the person being referred to as uh, uh, the, the, 
the, the drafter of the cable. Cable was apparently drafted by, it's blacked out. This is in the email uh, that was released by the ACLU. But now we know for sure it was Gina Haspel. But there's something else that is in that email trail to Dusty Fogo that's quite interesting um, that comes right after that. Um, Ali, if you want to walk us through it. Basically, as you mentioned, uh, Ms. Haspel uh, confirmed yesterday that she wrote the um, the cable. She drafted it. And uh, here it seems uh, at the leadership level in the CIA, they believe that uh, it's not, and I quote here, it's not without relevance that blank, the person who drafted that email or that order, which is now we know is Ms. Haspel, figured prominently in the tapes, and blank, it seems this is a pronoun here, was in charge of blank at the time and clearly would want the tapes destroyed. So this basically raises uh, more questions. Uh, maybe there is, um, maybe the person who's drafting the email had it wrong. Maybe there's something else going on. But it's interesting. It's interesting that uh, there are uh, lots of things outside in the public domain about the destruction of the tapes, and uh, and it seems that just based on her uh, statement, um, some of these things are unredacting themselves uh, based on what uh, she said, and I think. Um, we owe uh, the American people or she owes the American people um, an explanation of these things. Maybe now, she will have a very good explanation for all this. Well, stuff. now, of course, uh, Gita Haspel was asked um, during her uh, hearing whether she uh, is on those uh, tapes. And she said, no, I'm not. I'm not on the tapes. Well, but you know, but, but now we have uh, an email from the top leadership of the agency um, saying that she was. Now, were they wrong? But also, there's something else that Ms. Haspel said, that uh, the 92 tapes were of one detainee. The CIA records indicate that the 92 tapes have two detainees. There's detainee one and detainee two. So I think maybe she needs to refresh her memory and go back and check what's going on. She might have very good explanation for all these things. But these things, what we're looking at, what Michael has here with him, these things are already in the public domain. And I think the senators need to do their job in asking her about her impression about these emails and trying to get the truth. Um, not, um, you know, believe me, uh, that's what I'm saying and don't look anywhere else because you're not going to get anything because everything is classified. Uh, this is not the way it goes. One of the things that's extraordinary to me, just knowing how you know government normally works, is they did this even though uh, you know the most senior lawyers from around the administration and especially in the White House said, "Don't do this." Um, well, and, and even and, even and a I, federal I, judge, I believe, uh, in the Musawi case, there was a federal judge that basically said, "Don't do it." So yeah. they violated a federal judge's order. They violated the White House orders. Um, Even you know, David Addington, uh, uh, Harriet lawyer, Myers, Harriet Myers, but Addington, Addington who was the yeah. most hardline of the hardliners when it right. came to yeah. these counterterrorism policies, uh, said, "Don't do it." Well, yeah. and that goes back to the question that uh, you guys asked me earlier. I mean, you know, why I oppose the nomination is because here 
we have a situation that looks at face value as individual who are part of, let's call them a cabal or a group of people who really think they are bigger than the system, uh, that the system work for them. They don't work for the system. And I think I have a problem with that, especially at this day and age with everything that's happening to our national security. And, uh, and the destruction of the tape is uh, the destruction of the 92 tapes, uh, very, you know, um, very concerning. And we need answers. And the answers that we got yesterday were not answers. Uh, actually, they raised more questions, frankly, uh, than, uh, than, you know, satisfy uh, our concerns uh, about the, the issue of the tapes. I, you know, I, I just I, just coming back to this uh, question of what was the motivation, what was driving it, um, there had been, a, a, I think, the week that the, uh, the tapes were destroyed or the cable from Gina Haspel went out to destroy the tapes, there had just been a big Washington Post story about um, uh, black site prisons that the mm-hmm. CIA had overseas. Uh, so the heat was sort of coming on the CIA. And also remember this is in the aftermath, not uh, – it's about a year later though, uh, but uh, still very much memorable was Abu Ghraib. And I found fascinating that Mike Morell memo uh, from 2011, which was just released by the CIA, in which mm-hmm. M- Morell said um, uh, he found no wrongdoing by Gina Haspel. She was essentially just following orders of Jose Rodriguez. Rodriguez gets a mild letter of reprimand uh, and that was it. Um, but he talks here about uh, – uh, Rodriguez's decision to destroy the tapes was in part because of the uh, agency officers shown in the tapes, thereby putting their livelihood and personal security at risk. But then he goes on to say this. He was also concerned that publication of the tapes would damage the domestic and international standing of the CIA, perhaps significantly degrading our operational capabilities. He says that the worldwide reaction to the leak of photos of the actions of U.S. military personnel at Iraq's Abu Ghraib prison in April 2004 cemented his view that the tapes represented a threat to his officers and the agency. Um, And that really struck me because it underscores the power of photos. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all still remember the images from Abu Ghraib. Absolutely. But if we had those images of what was being done at CIA black site prisons, would we even be having this discussion right now about whether to promote the person who ordered that's, the destruction look, uh, to be director of the CIA that's, if we had the photos, that's, the that's, images. That's a very good question. But also on the same time, I um, fully agree that um, these tapes, if we still have them, they should never have been public at all. We should not make them public because the images of Abu Ghraib damaged our national security. The number one reason for foreign fighters who joined, who joined um, uh the so-called resistance in Iraq against our occupation, as they they claimed it was, was because of the images of Abu Ghraib. Uh, The new generation of uh, terrorists who joined ISIS and al-Qaeda were initially motivated by the images of Abu Ghraib. They didn't know bin Laden. They didn't go to Afghanistan. They didn't know Zawahiri or or, or, or Zarqawi. I hear you, but I also remember that it was the publication of those Abu Ghraib photos that spurred uh, the debate about these sorts of techniques that prompted memos to be released that really put the spotlight on 
what was being done in the U.S. government's name? It was just done in Abu Ghraib, and we didn't go beyond that to black sites. We didn't go beyond that to anything. Every time there was a story, they said, well, we saved lives, and everybody was, okay, you know, we saved lives. We did not have what we had after the OLC memos were declassified and after, you know, the whole program was opened when you have Cheney and you have other individuals came out and publicly started to say, um, you know, and, and list all the information that supposedly we gathered because of EITs. And this is when people who were involved in this, such as myself, we, we spoke out and said, no, 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 that's how we got the information. Look, you know, it is very dangerous when you put these things out. We have the images of bin Laden's death, for example. They are still classified. We didn't destroy them. Mm. You don't have to put them out. We can hold secrets. So if a federal judge and if the White House and if the leadership of the United States government said, don't destroy this, you're not a rogue agency. What's the value of those images if you never release them? Well, you know, at least for internal investigations and what's going on and what happened, I think this they, they will be they will be important to see. I mean, I know that supposedly all these things were downloaded and um, you know written, but again, as Michael said, the the image image means way more than a person who is describing the image and writing it down. But Ali, if if uh if you agree with the premise that releasing these videotapes would be very damaging to national security, then why don't you buy the argument of Haspel and others in the CIA that the risk of those uh, videotapes, those videos being leaked was something that we just couldn't accept and that they, they were acting here in good faith? <laughs> because we have a system. And there's a federal judge said you're right. not allowed to destroy them. Right. There is an executive branch in the White House and all the lawyers said you're not allowed to destroy them. You have the general counsel of the CIA, John Russo, said you're not allowed to destroy them. You go and destroy them. You're be- if I do that in the FBI, if I destroyed evidence because I thought, oh, my God, if this evidence goes to the New York Times, my God, this will be horrible for the FBI. I'll be in jail. Right. You know, it's not about being fired. I will literally be in jail. So we have individuals that because of the war on terror, because of the last two decades of, um, of a lot of overclassifications, a lot of, you know, things that you and I and everybody knows about, they started to feel that they are bigger than the system. Then uh, as the email that uh, Michael just read, um, we, you know, we prefer to just like, you know, them being upset after we do it than ask permission to do it, even though they did not get the permission to do it. And there's a lot of emails that indicates they did not get the permission to do it, but they did it anyway. Um, There's a real-life consequence to the use of these techniques that we're still living with uh, today, and that is that the uh, detainees, the al-Qaeda detainees, high-level guys who were subjected to these techniques, still in Guantanamo, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed... Uh, Nashiri, the architect of the coal bombing, and they have never been brought to trial because of all the complications of what was done to them. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, we have Khalichek Mohammed, for example, um, someone who before he was arrested, he was on Al Jazeera channel bragging about how he masterminded the 9-11 attack. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he has been in Guantanamo, I believe, since 2004, 2005. 
uh, or 2003, I believe. I think he mm-hmm. got arrested. Um, and until today, we cannot prosecute one of the biggest mass murderers in the 21st century. Uh, the same thing with Nashiri. We still cannot bring justice to the victims. Now, just tell 17- us who Na- Nashiri Na- was. Abdurrahman because- Nashiri is the yeah. one that yeah. allegedly Ms. Haspel oversaw his torture at the black site. Uh, he was he, a mastermind was, of the USS Cole oh, attack. Which you had one, investigated which in I Yemen was, at I, the time. I was right. the, the, the case agent for the USS Cole. And mm-hmm. interestingly enough, I knew more about Nashiri than anyone at the time because I've been working on that case for a long period of time, me and my team. Um, and uh, we were not allowed to have access to him mm-hmm. um, because, you know, at the time, um, we became persona non grata at the, at the black sites and they insisted to take him to a black site. After all these years, Nashiri is still in Guantanamo. He did not face justice, real justice, for the murder of 17 American sailors on October 12 of 2008 in Yemen. You have Abu Zubaydah and all his involvement in terrorist plots uh, to include the Ahmad Rassam uh, plot that was disrupted uh, with the grace of God uh, around the millennium and his plots uh, that he was overseeing in, in Jordan and other places. And guess what? He still did not receive any, um, a, a, you know, um, his victims did not receive any justice uh, that they deserve. Um, so this is where we are today. I mean, this program damaged the national security of the United States on so many different levels. It damaged our reputation. It damaged our relationship with our allies. It damaged our ability to prosecute and bring justice to murderer, m- murdering thugs and terrorists. It damaged... Um, our reputation. It made us look as hypocrites where we write every year a report by State Department saying, oh, this country tortured, this country do illegal detention, mm-hmm. but also at the same time, we appear to be doing the same thing. And this, the, all these things, you know, we discussed early on when we were fighting the program on its being implemented. But this is also the same conclusion that the CIA inspector general uh, came up with. Uh, back in 2004, mm-hmm. which put the program on shelf, uh, for, on, on the shelf for uh, for a while. And so, the so, message that would be sent if Gina Haspel becomes director of the CIA is what? The message that uh, will be sent is: Look, um, stand up for American values, you will be punished. Disregard American values, you will be promoted. It's enough that we didn't have an accountability for torture. It's enough that we did not have an accountability for the people who sold us the lie of 9/11 of, uh, of 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 the Iraq War. It's not that it's 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 enough that we it's not enough that we didn't have an accountability for for 9/11. Not one single person was held accountable for not sharing information that could have prevented 9/11 from happening. But now these individuals are being promoted to come back to rewrite history. I think this is this is very significant. This is you know our country is on a crossroad now. Um, so this has been a fascinating conversation, as it always is with you, Ali. I have one just forward-looking question, which is: So Gina Haspel said that uh, if she were ordered by the commander in chief to uh, to to bring back waterboarding, uh, as he said he he wants to do, said that during the campaign, that she would not do it. That we are no lo- the CIA is no longer in the torture business, the harsh interrogation business. The president, of course, uh, uh, during President Trump during the campaign, he said, among other things, I love waterboarding and we should bring back waterboarding and much worse. Um, How confident are you that um, under this president, 
um, that uh, we won't go, go back to those um, those kinds of techniques. Are you worried that uh, that we could we that the CIA might actually do that again? Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, um, <laughs> you know, Miss Haspel yesterday did not answer questions about the morality of waterboarding, about the morality of the techniques that took place. And it seems that if she get an OLC memo saying something, that immediately become moral because some lawyer approved it. Uh, so this is a very gray area. It's not a black and white. It's a very thick shades of gray. And uh, we don't have answers, yes or no. Um, and, and I think there is uh, still an attempt to deceive because when you do selective declassification as part of an influence campaign, it, it, it can only lead to one thing, um, deception, uh, trying to control a fake narrative. Look, you guys have been working on this for a long period of time. Michael, you talked to me when I first came out on this issue. And I'm sure you remember the influence campaign that was going on against me, that I am a liar, that I, yeah, that the techniques work, that the, all the information was provided because, uh, by the terrorists because of torture. And later on, we found out that everything that you guys heard was a lie, and I was saying the truth. And now, they put you on a watch list at some point? Yeah, uh, I mean, there is nothing, there is nothing that did not happen. Nothing that did not happen with me when you, you stand up and saying the truth. Yeah. So look, we have a situation now that they wanted to you know, turn back the page. They wanted to open these wounds. And I think this is probably a battle that we have to fight more than once to win. But American morality will win. Our principles will win because each and every one of us in the government and each and every citizens take an oath and they believe in that oath. And towards the end, there's something that makes America different. And it's our constitutions, it's our values, it's our way of life. And no cabal inside the beltway can change that. Uh, and on that note, um, Ali Safan, thanks for joining us uh, on Skullduggery. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Steve Laddick and Ali Sufan for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave us a review. And Sirius XM subscribers, you can now listen to Skullduggery on POTUS, channel 124, every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 2 a.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So check it out. We'll talk to you next week.